is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is going to be a very quick introduction. Back again this week is Dr. Tahina Nioji. She is a rheumatologist and epidemiologist with a specialization in gout and osteoarthritis. She is currently leading updates of the American College of Rheumatology treatment guidelines for both osteoarthritis and in gout. Of course, on this episode, we'll be talking about gout. This one, as I said prior, focuses more on urate-lowering therapy. What's the controversy about there? Should we be targeting urate levels? And then at the end of the episode, uh, the last 10, 15 minutes or so, we get into all your random questions from social media. This episode is filled with great pearls. So without further delay, here is the rest of our discussion with Dr. Tahina Nioji. So the a question that had come up is can you can you ever use allopurinol during this acute flare? Let's say let's say this is not Mr. T's first acute flare. Let's say it's his third one in a in a one year period. Mm-hmm. Um, would you when would you initiate allopurinol? And so now we're sort of and and how does that factor in? How does this factor into your analogy? So we just talked about the stuff to put out the fire, right? Now we're right. talking about the bathtub analogy. So can you kind of walk us through? Yeah. So this is a really great question, very clinically important. And um, I think if you ask different people, you'll get different opinions because we don't actually have great data right now to support a particular recommendation. There was one trial that was done that was published in American Journal of Medicine a few years ago where they addressed this question. But um, there are concerns about the study being small and underpowered to really address this question. Um, So I think uh, there are a couple of practical things. So one is um, a theoretical concern that by starting urate-lowering therapy during the flare and causing more urate fluctuation, there's a theoretical risk that you could prolong the flare. Um, Secondly, you know, if someone's in the midst of their flare and you're starting a treatment to put out the fire and this treatment of managing the bathtub, it's very confusing to patients and they will often stop the allopurinol when the flare has resolved. And then they come back and they think their physician is crazy because they're like, well, they gave me a medication. I felt better, but then like it just came back. And, you know, so I I think trying to do the whole education piece all at once while they're in the midst of a flare is challenging. Um, And I think it's for me, my practice is that I have them come back about a week or two after their flare has resolved um, to get them started. And another thing is that you you do have to start at a low dose and titrate up. So starting in the midst of a flare, and then if they never come back, or they misunderstand and stop, you're just never going to be able to um, really get them get their gout properly managed. Okay, so things that I'd like you to hit on how when you so you bring them back in a month after a flare you're just you've decided this person is going to be flaring again in the future so i'm going to put them on allopurinol how do you titrate that dose up and how often are you following them 
And then we'll get to the million dollar question of, are you checking your eight levels as you're doing that? Right. Okay. So, you know, a week or two after this flare has resolved and we've decided that this is an individual that is appropriate for urate lowering therapy because they have, they've met some indication for urate lowering therapy. Um, so depending on the renal function, I will start at either 100 milligrams a day of allopurinol or at 50 milligrams a day of allopurinol if they have CKD stage four. Um, and the reason for this is twofold. Starting low, the starting at a low dose is um, the reason for that is twofold. One is that the um, slow up titration of urate lowering therapy can help minimize the flares that one can experience at the initiation of urate lowering therapy. And second is the starting dose of urate lowering of allopurinol has been associated with allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. And so um, some studies have uh, shown that by starting at this low dose, you can try to mitigate that risk. And so I start at 50 or 100 milligrams, and then I increase to, uh, sort of by 100 milligrams every two weeks until 300 milligrams. So if I start at 50, I'll go 50, 100, 200, 300. If I start at 100, I'll go 100, 200, 300. Some colleagues um, simplify that and they'll go 100 uh, excuse me, they'll uh, start at 150 and then go to 300. Um, but anyway, my practice is to uh, start at 100 and go up every two weeks. The metabolic uh, or the biochemical response to allopurinol is pretty quick. So, you know, within a couple of weeks, you're going to see what the urate response is. I usually bring them back sort of four to eight weeks later, check the urate and further dose titrate as needed. I counsel them about this early um, phase and the risk for flare. I start prophylaxis um, in in patients when I can, when there's no contraindications. Um, but you know, again, mid, trying to mitigate the risk for flare by this starting low and slowly, uh, or you know, up titrating over time. I also advise them or counsel them that. Um, just because we get their urate to below six within a few weeks doesn't mean that they're clear of, you know, their, their risk of, of, of gout just yet. They're not home free yet. We need to have the urate below six for a prolonged period of time, you know, six to 12 months um, before we can really say that their risk of flares has gone down. So this, uh, to get back to your analogy, this is the urate lowering therapy prevents the water from filling the bathtub at which yeah. point we can get a flare if, if the water level gets too high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, in, in almost virtually every country, urate, uh, urocosuric therapy, like with probenicid that we have available in the U.S., is um, really underutilized. Um, but probenicid has um, some disadvantages in that it's multiple tablets per day. And we already know that um, adherence for any chronic disease is challenging. So, um, you know, while I do use probenicid, um, uh, you know, I think for adherence purposes, when, uh, you know, I, t I tend to start with allopurinol. Okay. Yeah. And I, I know there's a new fancy like combination, uh, some more expensive version that I just recently saw come out. 
Um, yes. Which I probably won't use until, you know, until I, I don't even see probenicid very often. Uh, I don't even know. Is it where you're talking like three or four times a day that it's, it needs to be? Taken? It's twice a day, but um, you might need to take. So, you know, some of my patients are on 1500 milligrams twice daily. And so that's six tablets okay. each day. I got it. So it's, is it? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't remember if it was like the side effects, why it's not used more often. but it, So it's not cost, but it's more like just the pill burden. Is I think it's mainly the pill burden. It, side effects is not really that much of an issue. Oh. The, you do have to keep hydrated because you do have a risk for urolithi- urolithiasis. But, um, you know, for gout patients should, ge- should generally keep well hydrated. Okay. So that, and that, uh, for the analogy, that's draining the water from the bathtub by helping you excrete or not excrete. Exactly. Con- yeah. Okay. Got it. Get, having the urate come out the drain. Got it. Like, yeah. Getting the water to go out the drain. Whereas the allopurinol, I say that's like us turning off the faucet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so this, this was a sticking point in the recent guidelines where the American College of Physicians, they in their guidelines, they said they, they didn't think there was strong enough evidence to recommend following uric acid levels and titrating your your allopurinol or whatever urate lowering therapy you're using based on those uric acid levels. The American College of Rheumatology, I know you're actually in the process of updating the guidelines for 2019, so we might have to have you back yeah. again in the future. I, I know that there's a differing opinion there. Can you explain that a little bit? And because I know the audience, we've talked about this a lot on the show. There's guidelines are written in different ways, and that causes different societies to have different opinions sometimes. So right. unpack this for us, if you will. Okay. So, um, I so I will just br- briefly just just give a general philosophy f- about guidelines. Um, so the ACP's position was that is that they will only make recommendations based on the highest level of evidence, and that's RCT evidence. In the American College of Rheumatology, they would also generally make recommendations only on on the basis of the highest level of evidence, RCT data, but we're not so fortunate to have RCT data to address every single clinically relevant question. So then there's the philosophical issue of, well, what do you do then? Do you just not make any recommendation and leave every practitioner and patient to figure things out for herself or himself? Or do you make recommendations based on the totality of the evidence out there that includes evidence in the literature, but for the randomized controlled trial data. And so that's where the American College of Rheumatology lies in that we, um, I shouldn't say we, the American College of Rheumatology will make recommendations based on RCT data. And in the absence of RCT data, we'll look at the totality of the evidence and we'll downgrade the level of the recommendation because it's not RCT data, but we'll at least say, Based on the best available knowledge to date, this is the recommendation. Okay, so the ACP correctly states that there is no RCT evidence that a target of less than six, or yeah, yeah, that a target of less than six is better than a target of less than seven. That is true. There is no RCT data to say that one target is better than another. But we have a basic understanding of the pathophysiology of gout 
and of the solubility of urate. So at normal pH and body temperature, the solubility of urate is at 6.8 milligrams per deciliter. So you want to get urate, serum urate, to at least below that to try to keep urate in solution. And you don't want crystals to just be, or MSU, to, or excuse me, urate, to just be hovering at the point of solubility. You'd like to get the concentration even lower to try to prevent crystallization. So that is the basic um, thinking behind why there's this target of less than six. Further, there's good observational data from years ago that show that the lower the serum urate is, the faster the TOFI resolve, the faster the TOFI dissolve, I should say. Um, and then, you know, another issue with the ACP guidelines is that, and this is, um, you know, I think really illustrative of why it's, or how things can diverge just by a simple decision at the beginning of what you're including in your lit search, um, in your lit review for your, your guidelines development. The ACP decided that they will not include studies about peglodicase, that drug that I said is a pegylated uricase that's like the bucket that you just take it and just, um, you know, pick up the water from the bathtub and dump it out. And the reason, as we were saying, is that's an intravenous treatment. It's primarily used by rheumatologists for severe refractory tophaceous gout. Mm -hmm. So that seemed reasonable that, well, primary care physicians are not going to be using that medication. However, those trials, that trial that published in JAMA in 2011 or whenever that was, was the you know first trial to be able to demonstrate within a six-month period of this trial that by reducing serum urate to below six, you get a clinically meaningful and statistically significant reduction in flares and TOFIS. The other trials of urate-lowering therapy of oral agents, which aren't as um, so profoundly hypouricemic as peglodicase is, those trials, if they finish in six months, that's not long enough for people's urates to be down low enough to get that clinical benefit. And the long-term extension studies were discounted because those were not during the randomized period of the trial, though the long-term extension studies did show benefits. But, um, you, you know, the, the individuals would argue, well, that you can't say outside of the randomized period that the reduction in flares and TOFI were due to reductions in urate. So that's sort of where some of that um, controversy lies. But, but as I said, if they were to have included the Piglota case in their lit review, they could have at least addressed the question of does lowering serum urate actually ben result in benefit. Right. And that's where the challenge has been for the ACP guidelines as well. They acknowledge urate crystallization causes gout and that there's a known solubility level, uh, solubility point for urate, um, they couldn't reconcile that bi basic biology with targeting a specific uh, threshold. The, the challenge can, sorry, I can go on and on. <laughs> so let me just, let me just share with an example of why it's challenging to manage gout without monitoring urate. Okay. Yeah. Cause that was going to be my question. Like, so yeah. if we're not, if we're not monitoring urate levels, you know, how do we know how to titrate and how do you recommend you, you sort of gave us your way that you titrate, which is, mm -hmm. we, yeah. So 
let 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 us know. What are we going to say? Let her, right. let her answer. Come on, <laughs> just sure. tell us what to do. <laughs> okay, so just say you know you. So I think philosophically, it's also really challenging. Like, what do you do then? Do you just start at three hundred milligrams of allopurinol? Well, not everyone needs three hundred milligrams of allopurinol. You're increasing the risk that your patient is going to get allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome because you did not start at a lower dose. You're going to increase their risk of having flares because you're not starting at a low dose and gently up titrating. And if you start at a low dose, how do you know when you should increase it and to what dose you should be increasing it to? But let's just say you have Mr. T, you started him on some dose of allopurinol that you thought was appropriate. Now, Three months later, he comes back to you for a visit and he's having a flare. What do you do? If you're not monitoring his urate, you don't know if he's having a flare because you dropped his urate really fast and this is just expected biology and you should stay the course. Or you don't know if his urate is still sky high and that's why he's flaring and you actually need to increase the dose. So this idea of treat to avoid symptoms how do you know, you know, what strategy you should be using to, to avoid that symptom for the, you know, in scenario one, he doesn't need further dose escalation. What he needs is gout flare management. And, you know, if he's not on prophylaxis, make sure he's on prophylaxis. In scenario two, he needs gout flare management and an escalation of his urate lowering therapy. Yeah. We must have referenced this before, and Matt, remind me if we did, we can just cut all this out, but have we talked about that 2003 BMJ article on parachutes and randomized control trials? Ah, I love that. I have this great cartoon. Um, okay, so here is, <laughs> here is my uh, approach to guidelines when you take the totality of the evidence, and I love the parachute. And, you know, it, on the other hand, the ACP folks, when we had sort of a joint a meeting on this sort of roll their eyes. Oh, here comes the parachute analogy. But um, okay, so I guess before I jumped in there, I guess I should just briefly explain the parachute analogy. Is that you? You know, you can't. You don't always have randomized control trial data for every scenario. And as an example, with parachutes, we don't have any randomized control trial data to say that parachutes actually save lives. But if your plane is going down, you really would prefer to have a parachute. Okay, so the cartoon that I use in my talks is the approach of using the totality of the evidence in even in um, in the face of of a lack of RCT data is that when your plane is going down, you want the flight attendant to give you the parachute. Using the agnostic, well, we can't make a recommendation because there's a lack of RCT data. You don't want the flight attendant to say, well, this life jacket may be as reasonable an option as the parachute. <laughs> Sorry, I derailed us. Yes, you did. <laughs> well, bring us back on track. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> well, For once, it was not me. I want to move and, and answer some of the random questions that we got from social media because this was a really popular topic on social media. One of the first ones, and Tony also referenced this in like kind of helping me prep for the show. He said, make sure you ask about uh, starting colchicine or an NSAID as you're ramping up the allopurinol dose. So can you comment on that, whether that's a practice we should be doing? Yes. And I'm sorry if I um, sort of whizzed by that too quickly when I talked about what dose of allopurinol I start at. Um, so I do start prophylaxis when I can. Um, 
you know, so if someone doesn't have renal insufficiency, um, you know, other, con other contraindications to colchicine, I'll use colchicine. If they have contraindications to colchicine, um, you know, there's a rare patient who doesn't have a contraindication to using NSAIDs. Um, I would do use NSAIDs, but unfortunately, many of the patients that I see have contraindications to both. Um, I find that I can generally use colchicine more frequently than NSAIDs. The 2012 ACR treatment guidelines talked about duration of prophylaxis, and it's generally the longer of six months, um, or if they haven't been at target or having ongoing flares, then for at least three months beyond being at target and, you know, being sort of clinically quiescent. The question of how long to continue it for in someone who has tophaceous disease is a little murkier. Um, and we're going to try to address this in the update to the treatment guidelines. So the take-home message is, you know, at usually a minimum of six months of prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. So definitely not an indefinite um, tr time on uh, prophylaxis. I think Paul was mentioning, Paul, did you say you had someone that was still on colchicine like decades later? <laughs> yeah, it was just, I think it was one of those mindless EHR clicks where it was just being refilled for forever. So <laughs> right. along with their, their baby aspirin and everything else, I think it was just along for the ride, which is, it, it was fine, but it's not fine. <laughs> right. Well, and then may I, if I may just um, sort of take that on a little bit further is what sometimes happens is patients had their gout flare, initial gout flare managed with colchicine, and then they end up just somehow on it chronically without ever getting started on urate-lowering therapy. Yeah. So they may think they're doing okay because their flares are being suppressed. But what that is leaving untouched is the underlying hyperuricemia with the ongoing MSU deposition. And then us as rheumatologists see those patients years later where their flares are incredibly difficult to manage and they have tophaceous disease, joint deformities, and they're very upset that their gout wasn't actually being managed when they thought it was being managed by being on colchicine. And just uh, to take that one more step, when you think about treat to avoid symptoms, some people have said that, well, chronic suppressive colchicine therapy may be reasonable as treat to avoid symptoms. But again, to me, if someone were to say, well, if you have tuberculosis, you could just use an antitussivin and antipyretic <laughs> um, without treating the underlying TB. That's what it sounds like to a rheumatologist. Wow. That is very eye-opening because I I feel like I've seen that patient uh, that, that was on it and who knows if they had some weird pain complaints that were like this. I, I, yeah, anyway. Okay, so so start urate lowering therapy. Don't keep people on colchicine forever or or whatever uh, NSAIDs if if they're somehow able to take that for years at a time. The next question, the next and treat tuberculosis apparently and treat treat tuberculosis. You're, you're gonna want <laughs> Paul. You're gonna want to treat that tuberculosis. <laughs> Good tips. Well, all. Sorry, okay, <laughs> let me use a less ridiculous uh, example then for cardiovascular <laughs> disease. Would you say it's okay for someone to just be on antianginal therapy and not treat their hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, diabetes, et cetera. You know, like an anti-anginal is keeping their chest pain away, but not managing their underlying problem. Yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes. Um, so the next question is, uh, everyone's been asking about febuxostat. Who needs that instead of allopurinol? So that's a good question. Um, usually, if you can, um, if someone does not have an allergy to allopurinol, which a mild allergy in the trials happened in about two to five percent of the trial um, subjects. So if they don't have a mild allergy or don't have some other adverse uh, effect, you can keep 
up titrating the dose until you reach the serum urate target. If for whatever reason they're not tolerating it, have a contraindication, um, are not getting to the urate target, then you can consider switching to febuxostat. Febuxostat does have um, a sort of a more rapid urate lowering effect. Um, and so again, you need to think about prophylaxis to try to help prevent the expected flares that occur with more rapid urate lowering. But it's definitely not a first-line therapy. And now, um, if, as you may be aware, with the CARES trial, I see vigorous head nodding here, um, with the CARES trial that was published in March in the New England Journal of Medicine, this was a FDA-mandated post-marketing trial to try to clarify the cardiovascular risk of febuxostat. It was a non-inferiority trial of febuxostat versus um, allopurinol in patients um, with gout and with cardiovascular risk. The primary endpoint of a composite cardiovascular uh, outcome was uh, it, it, there was um, no difference, but febuxostat had a higher risk of all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. So in addition to the higher cost of febuxostat, um, and now this issue of... Now, I should say with a caveat, there was a huge amount of um, drug withdrawal and study withdrawal loss to follow-up. So there's a lot of um, sort of missing data issues. Uh, it sort of doesn't make sense that the primary endpoint there was, you know, no significant difference, but there was for mortality. But in any, any case, there is a signal here that is not yet explained. And so febuxostat is, is I don't think, um, you know, a first line therapy. Um, and if it is going to be used as second line, it needs to be, uh, you know, fully discussed with patients and yeah. shared decision making. And I've had this conversation with my patients and some of them will say, you know, I'd rather get shot again. Excuse me. I'd rather get, yes, I'd rather get shot again than have another gout flare. And I'm willing to take this risk that I may have a, a cardiac issue on febuxostat. That may um, mean different things to different people there. <laughs> um, and, uh, but there are other, you know, there are other, there are other options. You can add a uricosuric agent like probenicid to allopurinol or adding probenicid to febuxostat, et cetera. But I think once you're getting into that level of complicated gout patient, then, um, you know, you could consider, um, referring to your rheumatology colleagues. It's a, a nice chance to transition to one of my favorite questions. What other good reasons do I have to refer to my friends in rheumatology for someone whose gout I'm trying to manage, but not succeeding? Yeah, so if you're unable to get um, uh, their urate to, you know, below solubility, um, and you've really been, um, you're really uh, sure about adherence issues, etc., um, and especially if they're still really clinically active with flares and they have ongoing TOFI, I think um, managing, you know, really aggressively managing the urate lowering dose titration. Um, using multiple medications or even having to consider a peglodicase, those would be very reasonable um, scenarios for referring to a rheumatologist. And then, of course, the more severe gout, like really bad tophaceous gout, draining tophi, um, joint deformities, etc. You know, those um, are obviously uh, appropriate as well. So our our good friend Chris the Chew Man Chew has he asked us about that I guess for some patients and I believe he said of Asian heritage that the HLA B5801 can have some implications for the treatment of gout. So can you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. So um, HLA-B5801 has been associated with risk for allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. And so anyone who has HLA-B5801 is at higher risk for allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. But um, particular Asian subgroups um, have a higher allele frequency of HLA-B5801 than, for example, Caucasians. And so in the 2012 ACR gout treatment guidelines, um, specific subgroups were identified, um, including those of Korean descent who have CKD stage three or worse, and those of um, Han Chinese descent or Thai um, background, regardless of their renal function, because these groups have a higher HLEB5801 frequency. Subsequent to this, uh, the, those treatment guidelines, it's also been noted that African Americans also have a higher allele frequency and higher risk for allopurinol hypersensitivity syndrome. So there is, um, you know, evidence, um, to suggest that it would be, um, prudent to, uh, screen these particular risk groups, not necessarily, um, engaging in universal screening. But it's um, challenging to uh, find labs that do this testing or insurers that are covering this testing. Uh, maybe one or two more rapid fire questions, if you will indulge us here. So what? let's say Mr. T came into the hospital. This is a question we got as well. So let's say someone like Mr. T came in. He's coming into the hospital with a what you think is a hot joint. You think maybe this is gout. You think maybe this could also be septic arthritis. So first part of that question is a uric acid level helpful to me in the acute setting? <laughs> um, yes and no. So, yes, this is sort of a classic question uh, because inflammation itself is thought to be uricosuric. So, serum urates can be lower during an during a flare than during an intercritical period. But how low is low in one? In the, the one main paper that people cite regarding this, in their sample, less than 10 to 15% of um, patients with gout in the midst of a gout flare had a serum urate less than six, meaning the majority of people, 90, 85 to 90% of those people in this sample had a serum urate greater than six. Um, but a serum urate is not going to rule out a septic joint. Right. So to rule out a septic joint, the joint has to be aspirated. And, you know, in the patient that you presented with type 2 diabetes, I don't know how poorly controlled the person is, you know, how high the risk is for um, infection, um, but the joint must be aspirated to evaluate for a septic joint. And if the individual practitioner doesn't feel comfortable in doing that, then a, another specialty like rheumatology or orthopedics may need to be, and may need to get involved. Yeah. In, in my experience, and this might be my lack of familiarity, but it, it seems like it's not always easy, even when you have the joint aspiration to, to get, to get the answer. So I usually get rheumatology involved to, to try to get them to aspirate and help me interpret the, the study. Um, cause sometimes it just seems like it's just not that clear, but, yeah. um, so, and back to the uric acid level, if so, if it's like four or five, probably not, it's probably not a, I guess, does that help? What would be helpful if you're checking the uric acid level? Like, could it, could could anything help you rule in or rule out a gout flare with if you're checking it during an acute flare? Um, 
you know, so we, so the lower it is, the less likely it is. Right. Um, you know, so if it's less than four, I, I would say it's pretty unlikely. Okay. Now I can think of some unusual circumstances where it's someone who has an established diagnosis of gout and we've rapidly reduced their serum urate. Oh, uh, okay. But their total body burden of urate is still high enough that they're flaring. You know, so there could be these you know, un- unusual circumstances, but for run of the mill, someone who's not on any urate lowering therapy, um, you know, never been treated for gout, I would say that a very low urate would make it unlikely. And um, CPP, uh, acute CPP crystal arthritis, previously known as pseudo gout, can also present very similarly to gout. Okay. Paul and Stuart. Any questions we're missing? Anything else that you wanted to ask? I, I sort of ran through. We had a lot of duplicate questions on social media, but mm-hmm. I, I'm ready for take home points. Unless you guys have anything else? No, I don't really have anything else. No, that was that was spectacular. I feel all galded up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprise. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we could probably. I, I, actually, I do have one thing. Okay, Mr. T is only 66 years old. He is not 73. <laughs> I uh-huh. I love that you looked that up, Stuart. I I thought I thought he was probably in his seventies by now. I I also I tell you just the oceans of relief I have that there was not an impression attempted. I just I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it was anything like his impression of you uh, last week, then that oh, was <laughs> that was haunting. <laughs> okay, Tahita, can you give us your take-home points on gout, and then we'll let you go. And we have to thank you a million times for all your teaching tonight. Um, well, I want to thank you for uh, giving gout this uh, platform um, because we often feel that gout is uh, underappreciated and um, not really thought about a lot or talked about a lot. So thank you very much for um, for having this uh, on as one of your episodes. Um, okay, so take-home messages. Um, so number one, um, you know, whenever there is an individual who has, uh, you know, presenting with an acute presentation of inflammation, swelling, um, pain, etc. You know, think about gout when possible, aspirate to get a crystal proven diagnosis. Gout flare management ideally should be started at the first moment of the symptoms. So when a patient, you know, ends up having a diagnosis and is counseled about appropriate management, um, they should be uh, you know, given medications that they can keep with themselves, this medications and pocket strategy to get started immediately. Um, comorbidities should be evaluated and managed and optimized. Um, medication choices should take into consideration their comorbidities, their contraindications, other medications they're on. And once they've had, you know, two or more flares in the year, or their first flare and they have other features such as TOFI, renal, you know, kidney stones, um, they, and, and CKD, they should be started on urate lowering therapy. ULT is the cornerstone of gout management. Um, you will notice throughout this episode, I did not use the terms acute gout and chronic gout because I think that's a false dichotomy. We don't talk about acute diabetes, chronic diabetes, it's just diabetes. So similarly, we need to get away from this um, false separation of, oh, we just manage these acute flares and that's all we have to do for gout. Um, No, you manage the flares and you manage the underlying cause of gout. Um, And so get ULT started. And, um, you know, I did not get to this during the episode, but there are 
new, you know, more more recent trials that have demonstrated um, uh, clinically and statistically significant um, benefits of, of reducing urate to below six on those clinically meaningful endpoints of flares and TOFI. And start with um, patients on prophylaxis when starting ULT and start at a low dose and, um, you know, dose escalate to uh, target urate. I feel very confident in my future gout management. (laughs) And ashamed of my past gout management. (laughs) (laughs) This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. It sure has. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Helps people discover the show and uh, helps us feel good about ourselves. Right, Stuart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm tired. (laughs) Uh, If you want to give us feedback, please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We also have pages on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. This is has been Dr. Matthew Watto. And this is still Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I can't even remember what I normally say. This is crazy. <laughs> Big shout out to our social media team. including This has been Paul Williams and goodbye. <laughs> Thank you to all of our curbsiders who help keep the show running and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook, and Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram. And Stuart, I did it out of order just to freak you out because I know... That's, that's fine. <laughs> and thanks to Mr. T for being a, a good sport. By the way, did you know he had lymphoma? He probably had gout. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. I, I, I wasn't actually certain he was still alive. He is. He's 66 years old. He's a great guy. I know. <laughs>